0: All right, I think we're ready to start, so this will be our last little stretch of the conference for this weekend. Let's go ahead and bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can study the book of Romans this afternoon. Thank you for bringing us back, and may we learn a few more things that will help us in our understanding of the gospel and of the three angels' messages. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So how many of you were here for the three sessions yesterday? Let me see you raise your hands. Very good. So that's most of you. And then a few of you have joined the group. And that's good. We're glad to have those of you who have joined as well. Is anybody missing a handout for the class? I have a handout on the class. Okay. All right. So what we have covered thus far in the three sessions we had. We went through Romans 1 through 4, and the goal is to get through chapter 8. We have about an hour and a half, and I'm going to break it up into two 40 to 45 minute sessions here. So, we won't have time to get through every detail of the last four chapters of Romans, but we're going to hit the high points. So, Let's look at what we've seen so far. Romans chapter 1, Paul introduces the gospel, and he introduces it with a teaching that the just shall live by faith. We see that that is the power of the gospel because the righteousness of Christ is revealed in the lives of those who have experienced justification by faith. Then the rest of chapter 1 and 2 are showing that all of us need the gospel because all of us have sinned, whether we're the wicked people of the world or the professed believers who have chosen to sin. So when we get through the end of the first two chapters, what we see is that all of us need the gospel. And Romans chapter 3 shows that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we all need a savior, we all need forgiveness, and we all need God's power to live a righteous life. So then in Romans chapter 4, the question arises, if all of us need the gospel, and the gospel tells us that salvation is for all who believe, what does it mean to believe? And Romans chapter 4 shows us what it means to believe, Abraham and his faith. And we see with Abraham's faith it says that Abraham believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. But we saw at the end of Romans 4 that the way Abraham believed was that he was fully persuaded that what God promised he was able also to perform. So faith or belief that leads to salvation is being fully persuaded that when God says, I will give you a new heart and a new life, you believe that. And you believe that God will perform that work in your heart and in your life so that's a brief summary of what we looked at yesterday now let's look at at the key points of romans 5 through 8. in romans chapter 5 there's really two main sections the first section describes a little bit more the experience of justification chapter 5 verse 1 Paul says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we have justification, when we believe in God's saving power in our lives, we are now at peace with God. We aren't fearful of condemnation from him. We are at peace with God. And then he goes on to show that in the experience of justification, we grow in our justified experience through the trials of life, specifically tribulations, which teach us patience, experience, and hope. The trials of life that we go through help us to trust more in God, and that strengthens our justified walk with Him. Then in the last half of Romans 5, Paul shows us a little bit more in detail how we receive salvation and why we need salvation. We need salvation because Adam had an effect on all of humanity that because he sinned, all of us were born with fallen human natures that lead us to choose to sin as well. So his choice has affected all of humanity. And what Paul then goes on to say though, is that just as Adam had an effect on the entire human race, Christ also has an effect on the entire human race. And if you choose to serve him, his effect is much greater and has a has the potential to have eternal saving consequences if we choose to follow him. So that's what Romans 5 is about. Romans 5 can get a little bit technical, a little bit theological. So that's all the time we're going to to spend in Romans 5, with the exception that... In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, it's interesting where Paul says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, what's interesting about that statement? When we think about being saved by Jesus, what do we usually think about? Usually we think about his death on the cross, and that's obviously part of the salvation that He gives us. But we also see that not only are we saved by His death, we are saved by His life. And we're going to talk about that now as we move on to Romans chapter 6. And actually, I should mention this. Look at verses 20 and 21 of Romans chapter 5. You see in verse 20 of Romans 5, Moreover the law entered, that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And you know what people say, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. The more I sin, the more grace I receive. But if you study Romans 5 carefully, the point that Paul made is that Adam sinned. But the grace that Christ offers has a greater effect for humanity than the sin that Adam did. That's one of the key points. And then the other point is that when we choose to sin, Christ's grace gives us forgiveness so that that sin that we had committed will no longer rule our lives but what it does not say is that we can keep sinning so that we can receive more grace Paul already act, Paul actually dealt with that already in Romans chapter 3 and he says if you teach that and believe that your damnation is just so he clearly is not teaching that and then Verse 21 says that as sin hath reigned into death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So sin reigned because of Adam, but righteousness reigns because of Jesus Christ. And the righteousness of Christ is more powerful than the sin of Adam. Now we get to Romans chapter 6, and if you follow along in your handout, you'll want to follow along, just look at some of the key points, and you can go back and look at some of what I said in Romans 5 as well. But Romans chapter 6, if you look at the heading for that chapter, I believe is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, and it's one of the chapters in the Bible that we as Christians don't really believe. We might say we believe in the Bible, and we might say that we try to follow the Word of God, but when it comes to Romans chapter 6, we think that Paul must just be speaking in general terms that can't really specifically be true. But let's read Romans chapter 6, and I'm glad that all of you are here for this, because Romans chapter 6, you know, we've laid the foundation so that we can get to Romans chapter 6. Paul wrote everything else thus far to get us to Romans chapter 6. Notice what he says starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So people are saying where well, sin did abound, grace did much more abound. He says, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So he's saying, look, When you are justified by faith, you are dead to sin. Sin no longer has any dominion or power in your life, so you don't keep sinning. The gospel is not about grace abounding so that we can keep sinning so that we can be covered till Jesus comes. No, the gospel is so that we will be dead to sin and not live any longer living a life of sin. Because the power of the gospel that leads to salvation removes sin from our lives. Now he goes on. Verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? And there you see the concept of being crucified with Christ. If you're buried with Christ by baptism into death, that means you are crucified with him. Jesus died on the cross. When he died... He was crucified. If we are buried with him by baptism into death, we are dying the same death. We are being crucified. And if we die his death, we also have his resurrection. Notice verse 4. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So look, Jesus died, He was crucified. We die, we are crucified with Him. Jesus didn't stay in the grave though. He was resurrected. And when we are crucified with Christ, we are raised to live a new life. Can someone say amen? Amen. And that's what Paul was talking about back in chapter 4 when he says, look, Abraham was fully persuaded that what God promised, he was able to also to perform. Therefore, God imputed righteousness to him or declared him to be justified. And then Paul says, look, righteousness was not imputed to him alone for his sake, but for us also, if we believe on God who raised Jesus up from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. What's Paul saying there? He's saying, look, just as Abraham was fully persuaded that God could produce a new birth through him and Sarah, even though they were dead physically and could not produce new life, in the same way, we cannot give ourselves a new heart. We cannot give ourselves a new life, but the same God who gave a new birth to Abraham and Sarah is the same God who raised Jesus' son from the dead and is the same God who can raise us up to live a new life if we choose to be crucified with him and to be buried with him by baptism into death. And that gets to the whole issue of surrender. We have a choice to make. Are we going to surrender our lives to Jesus 100%? And by the way, don't worry about that. Let's focus focus on the message. Don't let the devil distract us, amen? The devil doesn't want this message to get out, all right? We can be raised to live a new life, the life of Christ. When we are crucified with him. As we, at Galatians 2.20, we talked about that yesterday. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, or the faith of Jesus Christ. This is the third angel's message. We have a choice to make. Will we be buried with Christ by baptism into death? The human nature says, no, don't die. Stay who you are. But Christ is saying, if you will come and follow me and choose to follow me completely, 100%, and you are crucified with me, when you are raised up to a new life, you will have my life. Now, isn't that an amazing deal? That Christ gives us his life and the condition to receiving that life is surrendering 100% and that's again why Ellen White says in Selective Messages volume 1 page 366 God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place and that is the element of justification that is missing in most of our Christian teaching most of our Christian teaching just says believe in God some kind of belief and he'll justify you. But what you really see is is that we believe that when we choose to follow him completely and surrender our life completely to him, then he will transform us completely 100%. And that's true justification. Now Paul expands upon this even further. Let's notice verses 5 through 7 of Romans chapter 6. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. See that? If we die like Christ, we will live like Christ. Does that make sense? And then verse 6, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, here in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, you clearly see a connection to Galatians 2.20 and being crucified with Christ. In Romans 6, gives us an added element that doesn't show up in Galatians. In Galatians, we just see that we are crucified with Christ. In Romans 6, it says that our old man is crucified with him. And the old man is our carnal human nature that causes us to go against Christ. It's our natural inclinations, our natural tendencies that we are born with. And what Scripture is saying is that our natural inclinations, our natural tendencies, our carnal human nature must be crucified. Because, see, it's your carnal human nature that says, I know the Bible says to love your enemies and to do good to them which despitefully use you, but they just cross the line and I'm going to tell them like it is. And when you do that, it shows that your old man is still alive and well. But you know when a person is dead, you can do anything you want to their dead body and they won't respond. And that's what this is teaching. When we are crucified with Christ, by the grace of God, He will help us to stay dead to the inclinations of our past and cause us to respond the way Christ would respond. That's why it says, Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. When the old man dies, Christ comes in, and He now runs our life. What's that? How? Being crucified. By choosing to surrender your will completely to Jesus Christ. Basically it goes like this. You say, you know what? I don't have the power and the strength to follow you, Jesus. But I'm going to choose to submit my will... To you, God, to your to the word of God, the way the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy says that my life should be. I don't have the power and the strength, but Lord, I give my will to you. Please take control. God will not take control until you give him permission. When you give him permission, then he comes in. And it's a daily choice. First Corinthians 15 says that I die daily. Now notice says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. When we are crucified with Christ, the body of sin is destroyed. And then it says that henceforth we should not serve sin. So in other words, as long as the old man is alive, we are servants to sin or slaves to sin. But when... The old man is crucified, we become servants to righteousness. And the remainder of this chapter we'll talk about this. And it's very interesting in Romans 6 verse 7 it says, For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now how many of you have a marginal reading for freed from sin in Romans chapter 6? Do any of you have the marginal reading for freed from sin? What does it say? It says justified, Right. So what Romans 6 verse 7 really says, and for some reason the King James translators put the word or the phrase freed from sin, but the word in the Greek is, for he that is dead is justified. So Romans 6 verse 7 is actually saying in order to be justified, the old man must be dead. If the old man is still alive, you're not justified. So justified, And it's interesting that this is hardly ever talked about, but it's clearly here in Scripture. I'm justified by the faith of Christ. When I'm crucified with Christ, I live by the faith of Christ. If the old man is dead so that the body of sin is destroyed, I am justified. That is what Romans is teaching. And again, it's consistent with Ellen White saying, God requires the entire surrender of the heart before justification can take place. Surrender is linked inseparably with justification. If you're not surrendered to Jesus, you're not justified. And that may be hard to realize, hard to believe, but that's the truth of the gospel. And if we want to stand in the last days, we need to understand this crucial teaching that in order to be justified by faith, we must surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. And unless this sounds like it's a really hard thing to do, in some respects it is, but listen, you are giving your life over to the most wonderful, loving, gracious being that has ever existed. Why wouldn't you want Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life? Why would you want the old man of sin? that causes you to be grumpy and irritable, to snap at your wife, to tell lies, to live deceitfully. Why would you want the old man to still rule your life when you could surrender your life to Jesus and gain peace, joy, and happiness? And that's what the gospel is all about. It's it's talking about having peace with God, of having a joy that comes from giving your life over fully and completely to Jesus. Now, let's continue on. Romans 6 is very, very powerful. Let's continue on. <laughs> so we've seen that we're buried with Christ by baptism into death, that like Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we are raised up to live a new life, a surrendered life, that reflects the life of Jesus fully, and when we are crucified, we are justified. Now let's continue, verse 8, now if we be dead with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Verse 9, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him, for in that he died He died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. And let me just jump to verse 14. It says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Notice, death has no more dominion over Christ, and when you are justified and crucified and surrendered, sin has no more dominion over you, because you are dead to sin. You no longer live a life of sin. And that is the amazing, unbelievable promise of the gospel. You know, sometimes people say, well, you mean I have to live a life without sinning? And my answer to that is, why would you want to keep sinning? When Jesus is offered to set us free from sin, why would you want to keep sinning? Because Jesus offers freedom, happiness, and peace. Sin offers slavery, bondage, and destruction. As Romans six twenty-three is going to show us, the wages of sin is death. So Romans six verses eight through ten shows that death has no more dominion over Christ. And if if we are dead with Christ, we shall also live with him. Now notice verse 11 of Romans 6. Likewise reckon or consider ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father the same power that raised him from the dead causes you to live a new life of faith that is dead to sin. And then in verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Now there are some creative and crafty teachers who have come along and said, Sin will remain, but not reign in the life. I still have sin, but it doesn't reign my life. Yes, Paul says, Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. It remains, but it doesn't reign. Well, guess what? Ellen White says in Steps to Christ, One one sin, persistently cherished, will neutralize all the power of the gospel. If one sin remains in your life, sin is reigning in your mortal bodies. Because Christ, when he asks us to be crucified with him, isn't asking for a 99.9% crucifixion. He's asking for 100%. 99.9%, 99.9%, you're just fooling yourself and the rest of the world, and the church. You'll show up to church and look like you're crucified, but you still have that little thing that you're hanging on to.
1: What you just said, and I've heard it, here. Okay. Sin remains, but it doesn't reign.
0: And you know what? People who say that sin remains but does not reign, they do not have a Bible verse to back that statement up. It's a human statement. Because scripture says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. And he doesn't then go on to say, sin will remain but does not reign. What he says, shall we continue to live in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And that is why I say Romans 6 is the chapter in scripture that we as Christians refuse to believe. Romans 6 teaches that we are dead to sin, that we no longer live therein if we are dead to sin, if we are crucified with Christ. Yet we as Christians try to match our human experience to the clear statements of Scripture and say, well, I keep on sinning, so I guess if sin is not to reign in my body, I'll just manage and regulate it so I do it about 10% less this week, 20% less the next week, 50% less hopefully in six months and maybe a year from now, I'll have it cut down by 90%. And that is not being... That, that is not being crucified. And yeah, we use that to describe sanctification as the work of a lifetime. Yet what I talked about yesterday is we totally misinterpret that statement from Ellen White. What she means by that is that we will continue to die daily to self because once we are justified by faith, that means that we are crucified with Christ and surrendered 100%. And 1 Corinthians 15 says, I die daily, meaning that for the rest of your life, The work of a lifetime, you maintain that surrender, and that is the work of sanctification. And the work of sanctification is a growth process. The blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. You grow. You become deeper in your experience. You become deeper in your knowledge of the things of God. The experiences and the trials of life cause you to have a deeper faith. But sanctification being the work of a lifetime does not mean that you'll never reach sanctification. It just means that it's a daily process of surrender. And that's why when you look at Romans 6, it clearly teaches that if you're dead to sin, you no longer sin. You can't be dead to sin and still sin a little bit. You're either dead to sin or it's it's alive in your life. And it's a daily process, a moment-by-moment choice that we have to make. So, verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Verse 13, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So notice, instead of yielding or surrendering your body over to sin, yield or surrender your body over to righteousness to live for God. And then verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. So in other words, death has no more dominion over Christ. He doesn't keep coming down from heaven to die on the cross. And when sin has no more dominion over you, that means it has no more power over you, and you don't sin anymore by the grace of Christ, because you are crucified with Christ, and he is now living out his life through you. See, it's really simple. Christ comes in, sin goes out. Sin comes in, Christ goes out. That's the bottom line. When you choose to lose your temper, to speak harshly or sharply, you have chosen to let the old man of sin have a resurrection in your body. and. As First John 2 says, My little children, I write unto you that you sin not, but if any man sin, we have an advocate. There is hope. If we, if we go back and we fall, we slip, and inevitably and invariably it happens from time to time, although God wants to bring us to the point where it no longer does, we can receive forgiveness, but that's not God's plan for us. His plan is for us to stay surrendered and to become more consistent and more consistent and to stay dead to sin. Verse 15, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. Now what does he mean when he says we are not under the law but under grace? When you study the first six chapters, the first five chapters, when you see that you are under the law, that means you are under the condemnation of the law because you have sinned. It is not teaching that when you are no longer under the law you don't have to worry about keeping the Sabbath. Christians who say that don't know what that verse is talking about you have to study the whole book of romans and you see that in romans three all of sin and come short of the glory of god therefore we're all under the condemnation of the law but when we become under grace because we've accepted jesus as our savior we're no longer under that condemnation we are under the grace of god so we no longer sin now the last part of romans six shows the difference between between being servants to sin and servants to righteousness or slaves to sin and slaves to righteousness. And if you recall from our study yesterday, the very first thing that Paul says in Romans in chapter 1 verse 1, he says Paul a servant of Jesus Christ. Paul saying, look, I have learned what it means to be a servant or a slave to God, to a slave to righteousness. Let me teach you this gospel as well. And here in Romans chapter 6, he's saying you can either be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Verse 16, know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey? His servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So notice, you can either be crucified and follow Christ or you can yield yourself and follow sin. Verse, And then... Verse 17, is like, I'm thankful that you used to be the servants of sin, but now you're servants of righteousness. And he continues and says a few more things. Verse 20, For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Then verse 22, But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. So when you become free from sin, when you are made free from sin, and if you recall earlier in the chapter, free from sin means to be justified. So now being made justified or free from sin, you become servants to God. Your fruit is unto holiness and the end is everlasting life. And I mentioned this yesterday, but in Revelation chapter 7, the 144,000, are described as the servants of God who receive the seal of God in their foreheads. So the teaching in Romans of being servants of God, of being dead to sin, of being crucified with Christ, that is the teaching that will help us to become part of the 144,000. Because when you are crucified with Christ and you are a slave to righteousness, that means you follow whatever Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life says. And the 144,000 in Revelation 14, they are described as following the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. And you know why they will follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth in heaven? It's because they learned to be his servants here on earth, and they followed him wherever he led here on earth. And the way he leads here on this earth, the very first step, Is to lead us away from sin and to lead us to righteousness. If you are a servant to righteousness, a servant of God, you will not follow in the path of sin. If you're gonna follow Jesus wherever he goes, he will lead you away from sin and lead you toward righteousness. And then verse 23: here's what you get paid if you're a slave to sin. For the wages of sin is death. And then notice the contrast. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So notice, if you're a slave to sin, you get paid. If you're a slave to righteousness, you get a free gift. Now, which would you rather have? Would you rather be paid a salary or would you rather be given a free gift? In this case, clearly, you want the gift. Because you can't earn the gift. You've done nothing to earn it. You've simply made a choice to follow Jesus, but you haven't earned it by anything that you have done, and you get everlasting life. However, if you are a slave to sin, and you are brought into its bondage, you get paid. You get paid very significantly in a way that you would never want to get paid. Eternal death. So your choice is either to receive the free gift of salvation or a payment of eternal death. And you know, the devil is, is, it's amazing how we let him trick us into thinking that if we surrender our lives to Jesus, we're going to give up so much and that we're going to miss out on so many things. When in reality, when you surrender your life to Jesus, you get the gift of eternal life. But if you don't surrender, you get a payment of eternal death. So don't let the devil trick you and make you think that, man, if I follow this teaching in Romans of surrendering to Jesus, I'm going to miss out on all the fun. But well, let me tell you something. Eternal death is not fun. But the joy and the happiness that will come from eternal life, there's nothing here on this earth that can match that. Amen. So that's Romans 6, and can you see why I say that it's the chapter in Scripture that we often don't really believe what it says? Romans 6 is saying that we are dead to sin, that like Christ died but was raised from the dead, even so when we are crucified with Him, we are raised up to live His life. And just as death has no more dominion over Christ, when we are raised up from the dead by faith in the power of God, sin has no more dominion over us, just as death has no more dominion over Christ. And that allows us to be servants to righteousness so that we will receive the free gift of everlasting life because we have a life of holiness. Okay, now, let me ask you, do you want me to just go straight through or do you want a little break um, as we move on to Romans 7 and Romans 8 just go straight through okay I mean because Romans 6 7 and 8 just go together like that so we can keep the thought going so we'll just do that we'll just go through Romans 6 7 and 8 and then we'll be done okay so let's keep going Romans 7 Romans 7 is a direct continuation of Romans 6, and by the way, if Romans 6 is the chapter in the Bible that we don't believe, oh, we can be dead to sin, we don't sin anymore, what? I don't believe that. Romans 7 is the chapter that we misinterpret to justify or rationalize continuing a life of sin. People will say, well, you have to understand Romans 6 based on what Romans 7 teaches. The good that I would, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, that's what I do. Well, let's see what Paul actually says. And let's see if there's disharmony between these chapters or if they say the same thing. And they actually say the same thing, and we're going to see that. If you look at the first four verses... Paul makes a very interesting illustration to describe being crucified with Christ. He describes the law of marriage. Let's just read through it quickly and then we'll talk about it. "'Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth?' For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband, so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Now, are you seeing some connections already there? End of verse 4, that we should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Remember Romans 6, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should be raised to walk in newness of life. Romans 7 is continuing that thought. And here's what Paul is saying. We understand the law of marriage based on the seventh commandment, which says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. When you get married on your wedding day, you make a pledge before God and the witnesses, but most importantly to God, that you will be faithful to your spouse as long as you both shall live. The law of marriage does not allow you to sleep around and do whatever you want whenever you feel like it. You are committed to a monogamous relationship for the rest of your life. And you know, that's a good thing. It's a blessing to find a marriage partner who is willing to commit him or herself to you for the rest of their lives. Yet sometimes some human beings look at marriage and say, oh, man, I'm not going to be able to, uh, to check the other girls out anymore. Oh, man. Or I'm not going to be able to check the other men out anymore. I'm not going to be able to flatter them with my words and, you know, sleep around this, whatever. And, and it goes both ways. And you know what? Some people carry that mentality into marriage and they'll say, well, I'll stay married to my spouse. But I'll have fun on the side. And you know it's true. And I lived in Trinidad for two years. And in the church, that kind of behavior took place way more than it should have been happening. And what's Paul saying here? Look, if you are married and you are not being faithful to your spouse, you are committing adultery. But Paul's making a spiritual illustration. He compares, he's saying, you're married to a man in a spiritual sense, and in a spiritual sense, all the believers are compared to being a woman. And that makes sense, because in Scripture, the church is described as Christ's bride. In Revelation, you have the two women representing the two churches, the pure church and the impure church. So Paul is using a spiritual analogy that a woman represents the church and a woman represents the believer in Christ. And he's making the illustration, and, and the same will be true of a man, but he's saying a woman, if she leaves her husband and marries another man, she's an adulteress. She professes to be married to the husband that she made her vow to at the wedding altar, but now somehow she's out with another man. And Paul is saying if if she does that, she's an adulteress. And you know what he's saying? We do the same thing to Christ. We profess to give our lives to Jesus Christ fully and completely. And yet, we want to still be married to the old man. Because Romans 6 says, knowing this verse, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. What Paul is saying now in Romans 7, he's saying, look, if you want to be raised up to live a new life in Christ, that is symbolic of a spiritual union, a relationship between you and Christ. But in, but in order for Christ to enter into that union with you, He will only do so if the old man is crucified. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Christ will not enter into your life in a spiritual union if the old man is not crucified. And why is that? Because Christ does not commit adultery. If you choose to be married to the old man, he will not choose to enter into your life. Right. So when the old man is dead, you are now loosed by the law of marriage from being married to the old man, so that you can now marry Christ. Do you see that? So it's like in in the in the real world, as long as your spouse is alive you are married to them. But if, God forbid, a terrible thing happened and they were to die, you are now free to marry somebody else and you will not be committing adultery. Likewise, if the old man of sin is crucified, you are now free to marry Christ. But if the old man is still alive, if you try to marry Christ you are in essence committing spiritual adultery or if you say I surrender all and you really do but then you go back to letting the old man of sin reign in your life you are committing spiritual adultery because you say I've married Christ I've given my life to Christ but now the old man of sin has resurrected within you and you're now really married to him again and Christ has to leave but you still profess to be married to Christ So this is how serious this is. The old man being crucified, dying to sin, it's a matter of life and death. Because if the old man of sin is still alive, we are guilty of spiritual adultery. But if he is crucified, Romans 7 says, that we should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. And... For the interest of time, I'm going to summarize verses 5 through 13 and just bring out a a few key points. And you can turn to Romans 7 in your handout. Basically what Paul is saying in these verses is that the law of God brings a knowledge of sin. And in verse... Let me see here. In verse 9, Paul says, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Now, in Special Testimonies on Education, pages 73 and 74, I won't read the whole quote, but you notice that Ellen White quotes this passage. And when Paul says, I was alive without the law, law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died, notice how Ellen White puts in parentheses after when the commandment came, she says that means it came home to the conscience. So Paul was saying, you know, when I wasn't thinking about God's law, I thought that I was living a great life, but then God brought his law to the home to my conscience so that I saw myself as I really am. Because Romans 7 verse 12 says that the law and the commandment of God is holy, just, and good. What the law does is it's a transcript of the character of Christ who is holy, just, and good. And it reveals to us how we are not holy, how we are not just, and how we are not good. And so the law just brings to our mind a knowledge of sin. And it's sort of like, it's it's a compass to show us how far off our life is from the life of Christ. And it shows us that we have need of Christ, and it causes us to want to surrender our lives to Jesus when we see how far that we have wandered from Him. Now, Romans 7 verse 14 is where things become very important as far as what we need to understand in Romans chapter 7. So verses 5 through 13, he's basically saying, okay, I came to an understanding of what sin is based on the law. And in fact, in verse 7, he says, I wouldn't have known what lust is except that the law says, thou shalt not covet. And and this is an important point to bring out. Thou shalt not covet is the tenth commandment. It's the one commandment of the ten that can not really be measured by any external means. If I kill someone, it'll be in the newspaper. If I steal, someone will notice that something is missing. If I commit adultery, everybody will know. But if I covet, that could be just something in my heart That nobody knows about and Paul picked that specific commandment to show that the law of God is exceeding broad and it discerns the thoughts and intents of our hearts. It points out where our thoughts stray from the character of God and by the law is the knowledge of sin. So it's not just external actions like punching the wall or stealing or killing or something like that. It's... The thoughts of our mind, and that's why Jesus said, if you look after a woman and lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already with her. Things that you choose to do in your mind, even if they are not carried out, if that thought is conceived in your mind, that is a sin. So then, verse 14. This is where the man of Romans 7 begins his experience. And this is what Paul says. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now, many Christians teach that what Paul says here and what he says through the remainder of the chapter is the converted Christian experience on the way to heaven. Yes, Paul teaches that we're to be dead to sin in Romans chapter 6. But Romans 7 reassures us that we're carnal, sold under sin, and we do the things we don't want to do and don't do the things we should be. But let's be careful here. What have we seen in Romans chapter 6? Romans chapter 6 teaches that you are either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Remember? So if you're a slave to righteousness, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. But if you were a slave to sin, the wages of sin is death. What does Paul mean then when he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. If you are sold under sin, what does that make you? It makes you a slave to sin and Romans 6 teaches that you are either slaves to righteousness or or slaves to sin so if you are carnal sold under sin that means you're a slave to sin and that's not a good thing and in fact when you come to Romans 8 Paul says the carnal mind is enmity against God or enmity with God so we do not want to be at enmity with God that is not the converted experience now How do I know that Paul is describing slavery to sin when he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin? Look at the very next verse. He says, For that which I do I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. What's the experience of a slave? And you know, in my country, the United States of America, we have a terrible history of slavery. It's um, something that brings great shame and it's a dark blot in the history of the United States of America. And um, I recently read a book about Abraham Lincoln and it was just powerful to see how he came around and realized that when the... Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal, which was ordained of God to say that it really meant all men and women it doesn't it didn't just apply to the to the white race, but anyway that's an aside. But in slavery, a, a slave is bound to do what he doesn't want to do, and he can't do what he wants to do. So a slave. I look back to the history of America, a slave would be on a plantation and would have to plant the crops of his master, his owner, but he wouldn't get to do it the way he would want to do it. He would have to do the way his owner wanted it to be done. And in fact, in some instances, slaves would have families and then the owners would sell off the wife and the husband and the wife would get separated from each other. So the slave wouldn't be allowed to do what he or she wanted to do and he or she would have to do what he didn't want to do. And Paul is saying when you are a slave to sin, you may know what the law of God teaches, but you end up going against the law. You break the law of God even though you don't want to. And you don't keep the law even though you do because you don't have the power to do that because you are a slave to sin because you are still married to the old man of sin who is in control of your life. Does that make sense? So the things you want to do, you don't. The things you don't want to do, you do. That is slavery to sin. And that's what Romans 7 is teaching. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. And then verse 16. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that is it is good. So he's saying, I don't want to break the law of God, so I'm admitting that the law of God is a good thing. So this is someone who has a knowledge of truth. There are people that are out there that say, Oh, the law of God, I hate that, I'm not going to go... I'm not going to follow God. That's not talking about those type of people. This is talking about people who consent to the idea that the law of God is a good thing. We know that it's bad to commit adultery. We know that it's bad to kill, to steal, to dishonor our parents. But invariably, when we're not converted, we find ourselves doing the very things that we don't want to do. And we're saying the law of God is good, but oh, I didn't keep it. Continuing on. Verse 17, Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Now what does Paul mean when he says, It's no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. That's where you keep the context of the entire chapter in place. And at the beginning of Romans chapter 7, it's the old man of sin that must be crucified. And if you, if you are allowing the old man of sin to still be the slave master of your life, when you do the things you don't want to do and don't do the things you want to do, what Paul means when he says, it is no more I, but sin that dwelleth in me that does this thing, he's saying, it's the old man of sin that is doing this in my life. I don't want to do it, but the old man of sin is controlling me. That's what he means there in that verse. And let's continue on. Verse 18, For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. So here Paul is saying, look, in my fallen human nature, there is nothing good about my fallen human nature because in my mind, I have a desire to do the will of God. When he says, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. What he's saying is this. I have a knowledge and a desire to follow God, but that knowledge in my mind does not give me the power to do it. And so that's human nature. Human nature, we may know what is right, but we don't have the power to do that which is good. And then he goes back to saying, again, the the experience of slavery. Verse 19, For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. And then again, verse 20, Now if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. And then verse 21, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. This is the law of sin and death. That in the very next chapter we see that we are delivered from. Because Paul's saying, this law, when I would do good, evil shows up instead. But then in Romans 8, verse 2, it says, The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. This law that when I would do what I when I would want to do the right thing, evil shows up. By the grace of Jesus, we are delivered from that. And then continuing on, verse 22, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. And this is what confuses some people. They say, see, this man must be converted. He delights in the law of God. But all that's saying is similar to what he said earlier when he said, I consent to the law that is good even though I'm not following it. He looks at it. It's like you come to church and you say, wow, man, the preacher just preached a powerful sermon. I want to live that kind of a life. I want to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I want to stand for the right though the heavens fall. And then a simple little test comes up on the way home from church and you're flat on your face and you're like, oh man, how could I ever stand like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Yet Romans is teaching we can once we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. So we delight in the law of God after the inner man. But then notice verse 23, but, I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. So the higher powers of your mind are saying, follow God. But the lower powers of your flesh are driving your choices so that you do the things you don't want to do. And then notice what Paul says in verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And the answer to that question is, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord in verse 25. And notice this, verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? You know, Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. in Romans 7 shows what it's like to be a slave to sin, to have a body of death that is leading you down the wrong pathway, that would lead you to the loss of eternal life. And Paul is saying, oh, wretched man that I am. You know, this word wretched, it's found in two places in the entire Bible. Romans 7 Romans 7 verse 24 and Revelation chapter 3 Revelation chapter 3 in verse 17. And do you know what the message in Revelation chapter 3 is about? It's the message to the Laodicean church, Laodicea says, "I am rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing." And Christ says, "You do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked." And this word in the English, wretched, it's in the in Greek, it's the word "talaiperos," and it's the same word in Revelation. Wretched, wretched, talaiperos, talaiperos. So. It's the same idea. The idea of being wretched means to have the experience of Romans 7, of being carnal, sold under sin, being a slave to sin, having a body of death. Now, the thing about the man of Romans 7 is that the man of Romans 7 realizes, I have a problem. I know what the law of God teaches, but I'm not keeping it, so I need to be delivered from this body of death. But the Laodicean church says, I have the Romans 7 experience. Praise the Lord. I delight in the law of God after the inner man, but I'm doing all the wrong things, but at least I delight in the law of God, so I must have justification by faith. I'm on my way to heaven. And Jesus is saying, actually, no, you're not you think you have a saving faith with me you think you are rich and increased with goods and in fact and i don't have the time to to give you the whole study but if you study out what it means to be rich it means to have faith and love so laodicea thinks it has faith laodicea thinks it has saving faith Laodicea thinks it has righteousness by faith. Laodicea thinks it has justification by faith. And it thinks it has that experience by having the experience of Romans 7, knowing what is right but not doing it. Doing the things you don't want to do, not doing the things you want to do. It's a wretched experience, but at least you're covered by the righteousness of Christ. That's what Laodicea believes. And Christ says, If you stay that way, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And here's the thing. What is Jesus doing to the Laodicean church? He's standing at the door knocking. Why is Jesus knocking on the door of Laodicea? Because Laodicea has not let Jesus come in. Laodicea says, you know what? Here's the kind of righteousness by faith I want. I want a righteousness by faith that is on the outside. Jesus, you can be on the outside of my life and cover me, but please don't come into my heart and clean me up. That's Laodicea. And it comes down to the bottom line issue of do we surrender our life to Jesus or do we not? Jesus is saying, I would love to come into your heart and sup with you, I would love for you to surrender your life to me so that we can have a spiritual union, a spiritual marriage. You know, you need to crucify that old man of sin. He needs to be crucified. You need to be surrendered. So I'll knock on the door of your heart. I'll let you know that I'd love to be married to you, but don't think that I'm going to cover you with my righteousness if you don't let me come into your heart. So, Laodicea. It doesn't know that it's wretched. To be wretched is to have a body of death. To be a slave to sin. To do the things you don't want to do. To not do the things you want to do. To know what the law of God says. To delight in it. But then to see the law of sin bring you into captivity. To sin and death. And in fact... That word captivity in verse twenty-three is another word in Romans seven to show that you are a slave to sin, slavery, captivity. And Laodicea needs to come out of that condition. Amen. Does that make sense? Laodicea thinks that it has, it's increased, it's rich and increased with goods. It's rich. It thinks it has faith. It thinks it has righteousness by faith. It thinks it has justification by faith. Therefore, if you if you have salvation. You think you're fine. You don't need anything else. And then when you find out that Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart and he's saying, listen, you actually aren't saved. You need to allow me to come into your heart. You need to surrender your life to me completely. Laodicea's response is to say, no, I don't want that. I want salvation the way I thought it always was, that I don't have to surrender, that I can just... Have a mental ascent to the truth and be covered and then be changed once I get to heaven. Don't tell me that. And Jesus is saying, no, actually, I love you so much that let me give you a true testimony of your true condition so that you can be changed, so that you can be saved. Amen. So what does Paul do? The answer to that comes in Romans chapter 8. So we're going to get there. So, wrapping up Romans 7, Paul says, So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. And you know the Bible says no man can serve two masters. You can't serve the law of God with your mind and the law of sin with your flesh because inevitably the law of sin is going to win out. Christ takes 100% undivided attention and service so then let's get to the heart of the matter Romans chapter 8 Romans chapter 8 verse 1 there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit can you say amen to that No condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. The creative power of God's Word has changed you from from being dead in trespasses and sins, living the experience of Romans 7, of being a slave to sin, and now you have a new life where you no longer walk after the flesh, but you walk after the Spirit. Now, in the handout in Romans chapter 8, I have a quote. And by the way, I have a bunch of quotes from Ellen White about the Laodicean message in Romans chapter 7, and it talks about how the Laodicean message is a translation message so that when we overcome our Romans 7 experience, it prepares us for translation. But here in Romans chapter 8, Ellen White quotes Romans 8, And she says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now I quoted this, and this is from Councils on Health, page 69, just because some of the modern translations, like the NIV, don't have the last half of verse 1 where it says, Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And some people say, that the last half of verse 1 is missing from the manuscripts, and the reality is it's not. It's missing from certain manuscripts, but in the, the textus receptus, that last half of the verse is there. And that's a key verse, or it's a key phrase. Because there is no condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus because you are a new creature, because you don't walk after the flesh, you walk after the Spirit. And Ellen White, she quotes Romans 8, 1, and she includes who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And then she goes on to Galatians 5, which says, Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, for the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And she says, He named some of the forms of fleshly lusts idolatry drunkenness and such like after mentioning the fruits of the spirit among which is temperance he adds and they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts notice this even in the book of Galatians if you are in Christ you have crucified the flesh so what I want you to see from our study in the book of Romans is that being crucified with Christ is at the heart of the gospel. It's at the heart of the third angel's message. In order to walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, we must choose daily to be crucified with Christ. Do you see that? And if you are Christ, you have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Continuing on in Romans 8, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, how can we be made free from the law of sin and death? Notice Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. And this goes back to what we talked about yesterday when we saw that Jesus was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Notice Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. is this is really reaching the capstone, the pinnacle, of what Paul has been talking about with respect to righteousness by faith. Here's what Paul says. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh... God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, not outside of us, in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. So what's Paul saying here? Look. The law of God could not be kept because human flesh was weak, but God did something very special. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, I talked a little bit about the nature of Christ yesterday in Romans 1, and let me be clear. Jesus was not born exactly 100% like us. What do I mean by that? The book of Luke says that he was that holy thing, conceived of the Holy Spirit. He had a human mother, but the Holy Spirit was his father, and what happened with Jesus is that he was controlled by the Holy Spirit from his very birth. No other human being can say that. Yes John was born under the influence of the Holy Spirit, but he had two human parents. Jesus' father was the Holy Spirit. and So Jesus, yes He had fallen human nature, but that human nature was under the control of the Holy Spirit from His birth. He had the same tendencies that we have, but those tendencies were always in subjection, always under the control of the Holy Spirit, so that He never yielded to them, never allowed them to have any control in His life from birth because you see if Jesus had sinned once the plan of salvation is out the window we have the grace of God that if we sin we can receive forgiveness if Jesus had sinned once there wouldn't have been forgiveness so when it says the likeness of sinful flesh It's emphasizing the similarity because the word likeness in the Greek means same as or similar to. So it's emphasizing the sameness, the similarity, but it's also pointing out that Jesus was God. He laid aside His divinity as a human being, but He was under the control of the Holy Spirit from birth. We are not under the control of the Holy Spirit until we have the new birth. When we are crucified with Christ, From that point on, we are on equal footing with Jesus who came in the likeness of sinful flesh. So Jesus gives us the example to say, look, when you surrender your life to me fully, 100%, I will take your life and allow you through my grace and power to live my righteous life because I have already demonstrated that it's possible in the life I lived here on this earth. Isn't that powerful? So notice, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, and he condemned sin, or he condemned the power of sin in human flesh. In other words, because of what Jesus did here on this earth, he's saying, I lived a righteous life, and because of that, sin no longer has power over your human flesh. Because of me, Through my grace and power, sin does not have to have dominion over you anymore because of the life that I live. That's why we are saved by his life, not just his death. And then we see that the righteousness of the law, which is holy, just, and good, is fulfilled in us. This is justification by faith. The law of God is holy, just, and good. And the just shall live by faith. They shall live righteousness by faith because the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us when Jesus lives out his life through us. Notice righteousness by faith is not the righteousness of the law being fulfilled outside of us. It's being fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. So Paul was delivered from this body of death when he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ so that he no longer walked after the flesh, the law of sin and death no longer controlled him. It was the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus that controlled his life. And Jesus gives us the demonstration of how to have a victorious Christian life. Amen? So we get through all of Romans to this point to see that the good news of the gospel is that Jesus was made of the seed of David according to the flesh That because when he took our human nature he showed that by taking human nature human beings could have the righteousness of Christ fulfilled in our lives the way it was in his life. We don't have to remain in bondage to sin. Now the rest of Romans talks about or the rest of Romans 8 goes through a few other key points and we're down to our, our last few minutes but basically the rest of Romans 8 just summarizes what we've already seen. Verses 5 and 7 basically say that the car- to be carnally minded is death so I am carnal sold under sin that leads to death. It's enmity with God. And verse 8, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But then notice verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. And then notice verse 10, and if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So here's the mystery of God, which I talked about last night. Christ in you, the hope of glory, being Christ Being crucified with Christ. If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. In other words, the old man is crucified with Christ. And then verse 11, but if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. So your body was dead in sin. But the spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead will raise us up. It will quicken our mortal bodies. And that gets back to the faith of Abraham. If you go back to Romans chapter 4, Abraham in verse 17 of Romans 4, he believed God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. So Abraham says, look, The creative power of God's Word can take my dead body and give it a new life. When we have the same faith, we say the Spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead will quicken our dead bodies and give us a new life of faith. Amen? Does that make sense? And then, just to summarize some of the key points after this, in verses 14 through 17, Paul talks about how when we enter into the experience of justification by faith, we are adopted as sons and daughters of God and we are made to be joint heirs with Christ. We receive the kingdom of God. Isn't that amazing? And you know, in the book of Daniel, if you study it carefully at the end of chapter 7, it says that the verdict, the judgment, it says the kingdom was given to the saints of the Most High. If you surrender your life to God, if you have justification by faith in the judgment, God gives his kingdom over to you as you become joint heirs and reign with Christ. Which is why Laodicea, the message to Laodicea, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock, let me come in. And then he says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. You will be joint heirs with me in the kingdom. You will reign on the throne with me. That is the message to Leah to see But the condition is, I'm standing at the door and knocking. Let me come in. And then verses 18 through 28, Paul discusses the suffering in this present world, waiting for the glorious hope of eternal life. He says that the Spirit helps us to know what to pray for. And then to to wrap up Romans, and um, Andrew, how much time do we have left? Five minutes? Good. So we're right on schedule. Let's just read the 8, 29 through 39 to wrap up our study on Romans. For whom he did know... Sorry, let me start over again. For whom he did foreknow... He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, and by the word predestinate means chosen, them He also called, and whom He called them He also justified, and whom He justified them He also glorified. So if you're justified, you will receive glorification. And then I like what He says here. What shall we say then to these things if God be before us Who can be against us? In other words, if God has justified you, nobody can be against you. Continuing, He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Look, if you've been given justification, He's going to give you everything else in His kingdom. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. So look, Satan can come and say, that so-and-so, that brother Norman, I know this life of sin that he's lived in the past. And God can say, he may have sinned in the past, but through the blood of Jesus Christ, I have forgiven his sins. He has surrendered his life to me and through my power. He has lived a righteous life. I have justified him. You can't lay anything to his charge. Satan can do nothing against this. It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. And it's an interesting study to see Christ at the right hand of God. He's our high priest seated at the right hand of God making intercession for us. And then verses 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And, In other words, if you're justified, nothing that happens to you in this life ultimately matters as long as you're justified because you will have eternal life. And he says, As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Then verse 37, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Then verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when he says nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, you know what that love of God is? That God would take us poor, wretched mortal sinners who have sinned and come short of the glory of God and as we surrender our lives to him that he would love us so much that he would justify us so that we could have eternal salvation. Isn't that amazing? That if we have that justification, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing will separate us from from being with him eternally if we have justification we may die a martyr's death on this earth but nothing can separate us from the love of god and as we wrap up here you know the theme of this conference is total transformation paul gets to that in romans 12 verses 1 and 2 which ties into what we've been talking about where he says i beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. That means you're crucified with Christ. You present your body a living sacrifice. You are crucified with Christ, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And then verse 2, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So when you surrender your life to Jesus fully, completely, 100%, your mind is renewed. It's transformed. You develop new pathways, new habits. You live a new way you think a new way you have a renewed mind and Romans 13 verses 11 through 14 talks about as we wait for the coming of Jesus that our salvation is nearer than we believe so let us cast off the works of darkness and in the verse 14 but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. And that ties in to all that we've talked about. When we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, we will not make provision to fill the lust of the flesh. We will not have the experience of Romans 7. So the theme of this conference is total transformation. And by the grace of God, we can have that experience. I'd like to have a word of prayer and then I'll take questions as soon as 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 I say the word of prayer. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this experience of righteousness by faith that you have promised for us, that we can have total transformation, that we can put on the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can be completely transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we can walk not after the flesh, but that we can walk after the Spirit so that the righteousness of Christ may be fulfilled in us. Lord, help us to have that experience. May we experience justification by faith so that we will experience the third angel's message in Verity. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, and I hope that you know a little bit more about the book of Romans and that you'll take that knowledge and not just have it in your head, but experience it in your heart.